Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 290th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the great character actors in show business, a man who has excelled on the radio, the stage, and screens big and small for over a half century, and who is best known for his four-film collaboration with Spike Lee, including 1989's Do the Right Thing, and his two TV series collaboration with Vince Gilligan, playing the creepy drug kingpin Gus Fring on Breaking Bad from 2009 through 2011, and on Better Call Saul from 2017 through the present, earning Best Supporting Actor Emmy nominations in 2012 for the former and this month for the latter, which makes him one of only a handful of people ever nominated for multiple shows on which they played the same character. The great Giancarlo Esposito. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 61-year-old and I discussed the identity crisis he experienced growing up as the son of an African-American mother and an Italian father, how he got into acting at such a young age, and how a theatrical production first brought him to the attention of Spike Lee, with whom he has always enjoyed a close but contentious relationship, why, not long before being invited to audition for Breaking Bad, he was so low that he seriously contemplated suicide, how he rebounded, crafted the character of Gus Fring for that show, and then adapted him for its prequel, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Esposito, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the podcast. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Uh, I was born in Copenhagen, Denmark, uh, to an Italian mother and Italian father <laughs> and, and an African-American mother, and raised in Rome, Italy. Yes. And my father was a, a carpenter mm-hmm. in the opera house with his father, and my mother was an opera singer. And so... When you moved, I guess, at about five back to, or, or to the United States, not back to the United States, you, I think because of these, um, you, you were sort of caught between two worlds, right? I mean, from everything I've read, I guess maybe you can explain why you didn't quite feel that you really belonged anywhere. Yeah, you know, being raised in an interracial household in Europe 
as a child, um, my father spoke Italian in the home. My mother spoke Italian because she sang in Italian. There was also German spoken. My mother and father also were at the Hamburg Staats Opera. Mm-hmm. And so there were many different languages spoken. And I just looked at my parents as being people who were raising me mm-hmm. and people who were inspiring me. And in the European world, certainly I noticed uh, some tension here and there or some looks that my parents got because my mother was uh, very dark skinned mm-hmm. and my father was olive skinned, but never paid much attention to it until I came to America. Coming to America, I think the judgment is a little harsher. The looks are a little longer <laughs> and the verbiage sometimes is a little stronger. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I quickly realized that, hmm, maybe there's a difference happening here that I didn't quite register in the significant way that I would have otherwise. Certainly I knew my mother was black and my father was white. That from a story in Hamburg when the African grocery delivery man came to the door to deliver food, my brother grabbed my hand. He opened the door and we both looked and, and we swore we saw a ghost. My brother grabbed my hand, leaving the door ajar and we ran into the closet and, and uh, my brother locked the door. My mother quickly realized, oh, we have a problem here. <laughs> you know? So it was literally a, what it sounds like is it was a... We just had never seen someone who was that dark skinned. Yeah. Now I've been traveling all over Africa yeah. the last couple of years and yeah. you see people who, who my mother described and she sat us down and said, well, that's blue black skin right, right. and nothing to be afraid of. That's a human being who's from the other side of the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, so when you get to America in those really, you know, kind of formative childhood years and you're dealing with the kind of crap that you described, how does that affect a kid? It affected me in a very deep way uh, because I had no liaisons, no friends. You know, I quickly realized that I was being looked at in a certain way, not only because I had brown skin, but also because I had this curly hair and I had these Italian features. And so I, it was, I just wasn't accepted and people didn't make friends with me uh, because there was a clear delineation in this country. And as I grew a little bit older to, to sort, certainly see, you know, you, you have to imagine now, I was born in 58 came over around 62, 63, and we were right in the height of the civil rights movement. So I didn't understand why people discriminated against each other because of color and why there'd be this sort of American warfare going on between cultures. So for me, and I was also raised in the church, and all the the black ladies in the church who were just so wonderful and embracing would always be enamored with my hair. They would say to my mom, oh, he's got that good hair. (laughs) You know, (laughs) what does that mean? He got that good hair. You know, and so then I started to realize that there were lighter skinned people than me. My brother was a little a shade lighter than myself. Mm-hmm. And I realized, oh, this is an issue here. Uh, it's an issue, uh, a cultural issue within, within your own race mm-hmm. and also uh, a very deep issue within society. So when you came to America, the first place you went was where? The first place we went was Cleveland, Ohio, because my mother's mother lived in Cleveland, and she played organ in the church for years and years and years. And so we went there because it was a safe place to to sort of be dropped off. <laughs> you know, you so my parents could go and, yeah. and do what they needed to do, yeah. i.e. my mother was performing and they needed right. some time on their own. And that was a little bit dangerous because my grandma took to me because I was a little bit darker and she didn't take to my brother as much. 
and she loved to cook. And and so uh, when my mother came back, I think she was really a little bit upset because I uh, had gotten so heavy. (laughs) (laughs) Biscuits and gravy. You know, my my grandmother, my mother, my grandmother's from from Wylam, Alabama, which is where my mother grew up. And I finally found that a few years ago. It was it was eaten up. It's it's actually a neighborhood suburb of Birmingham that is the hood. (laughs) When I went back, I realized, oh, this is the hood. Uh, And that was only last year. I was uh, doing a film down there and found that neighborhood. But then my grandmother luckily moved to Cleveland, Ohio and and became the church organist. And and so we had a different situation there, but it was in the within the African-American community. But it seems like from what I read, maybe this is wrong, I don't know, but pretty quickly you guys go to New York, right? Very, very quickly. We were in New York. We were at the Hotel New Yorker, yeah. which eventually was bought by Sung Young Moon years and years later. I think it's 33rd and 34th and 7th Avenue. Mm-hmm. And that's where we spent probably about a year, a year and a half. And was the reason for going to New York or was a byproduct of going to New York the beginning of acting in some capacity for you. It seems like it would have been around that time where you started doing radio commercials and maybe even acting. Wow, that's exactly right. I started to work for a guy named Ray Fowler at RKO uh, because my diction was good and because this was the time where African-Americans were starting to do some commercials for certain things, hostess cakes. I did a tasty (laughs) cake commercial. I remember voicing over a young African-American guy's voice because he, his English, I mean, he just didn't speak clearly. Mm -hmm. And so they they wanted me to do voiceovers. I remember after it was over, I said, hey, is is there, can I be on camera at some point? That was my first taste of really desiring to be in entertainment. My mother, of course, was an opera singer. And of course, I she had primed me uh, by singing songs by Caruso and Mario Lanza to, to start to be a singer. And, and that's really what I wanted. And, and so it, it seemed like a no-brainer for her to take us to an audition for a show called Maggie Flynn. Yes, and, uh, which was Broadway. Which was Broadway. But th- let's go back for one second, though, because even with the radio commercials, I would assume it's not a six or seven year old's decision, let's go drive down to an audition for a radio commercial. So who suggested it? Was it something you immediately took to in terms of even just dipping your toe into the show business waters for the first time. How did that all come Well, out? it was necessity. You know, my father had worked for years for Saul Hurok in Europe, and he met my mother touring with Porgy and Bess, a show that went behind the Iron Curtain. So uh, there was always music playing in the home and always this entertainment aspect of our lives. In New York, my, my mother and father were at their end of their marriage, and so it was necessity. It was truly necessity that my mother brought us down for this audition. I remember Ernestine McClendon, who was from here in Los Angeles, but also had an office in New York. She was an agent. And we went and sang for her. And and we needed to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. And literally, we were eating franks and beans. And we were very, very poor. Uh, And so uh, I I remember my mother uh, every Thursday going to the welfare department and getting food stamps. And so my brother and I were sitting watching Gigantor, very old television show. In fact, it's it's a reminder of, of what our kind of uh, television shows are today or our movies. But it was it was you know if you remember Gigantor, he was a big, huge kind of robotic you know fighting man. And uh, we were watching television, uh, and and a commercial came on, and we saw our first African American kid on a commercial. And so my brother and I looked at each other, <laughs> and then we put two and two together, and we went, oh, we're struggling. We're eating you know we're eating beans, you know, Franks and beans. 
why don't we just talk to mommy and see if we can go do that? So it was your idea. It was. It was both my brother and my idea. My mother took to it because uh, I think she wanted to shield us in one way. I think on the other hand, she knew that we had uh, a desire. Mm -hmm. And that's what led to it. And so, as you say, doing that for a little while, now by age eight, you're you're on Broadway, which is incredible. In the show, Maggie Flynn, alongside some pretty huge people at the time, Shirley Jones, others. I guess I wonder, Broadway is now doing it with rigor. That's eight times a week, I'm assuming, back then for, for you. And you're part of a group you can't let down. What I don't know if you were still in regular school or if this took you out of school. Just was it still fun or was it now pressure? No. You know, it was very, very exciting from the beginning. And, and my gratitude today comes from that same excitement that I still feel because we were in a different world. We certainly very quickly had to get into private school, correspond our work. I went to professional children's school in New York and, and then Lincoln Square Academy afterward, mm -hmm. which were schools that, that catered to professional children. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a burden. The, uh, the burden was that we eventually moved to Westchester County and my brother and I would have to take the train in. Mm -hmm. every single morning uh, <laughs> and and get in a little too early for the school to be open. So we'd sit in the church on the corner across from Columbia mm -hmm. and we would wait for school to be open. But the, our lives then, we were in, I was in Manhattan all day until 11 o'clock at night. So it was exciting to be around adults. Mm -hmm. I was raised in a family that was so cultural and had so many people coming and going from our home in Europe. And then again, from it changed a bit when my mother and father were divorced. Mm -hmm. But that was, an, that was exciting for a kid kid to be able to stay up late and hear people play opera and talk about poetry and art and music and literature was always wonderful. We were always on the steps eavesdropping when my mother finally <laughs> said, you have to go to bed. So it, it was exciting. It was an exciting life for me and one that very quickly I realized I wanted to be in for forever. There was a lot of other stage work, a lot of off-Broadway, I know, right through your teens. Before, though, I, I ask you about anything to do with that, I know that there was, I guess, the beginning of, I don't know if you were on screen or just contributing to it, but you were, you sang the, you were one of the kids singing the theme song for the electric company, right? Yes, so we're going to turn like it on. <laughs> we're going to bring you the power. Yeah, I remember, uh, my goodness, so many folks from that period of time. Uh, this came out of working with Ray Fowler at RKO and doing more and more vo voiceover work, mm -hmm. which allowed me to become good on the mic. And then it allowed my imagination to soar. And uh, Electric Company theme song was a boon for me because finally I had an opportunity to maybe be on the show, but to, you know, to really equip myself well doing that theme song, yes. <laughs> you know, and, and it was a kid's show. So for me, it felt like a no brainer. And it was a wonderful beginning to, to my foray into television. And I didn't even know it, uh -huh. you know. For me, it was great to be around young people and adults who were in a creative environment. And you got on the show? I got on the show to do a guest spot, but I eventually went on to, from the electric company, to do Sesame I Street. I know, that was, that's where I'm going. Now. That's amazing. You like the two great kids programming. So Sesame Street, you were... Big Bird's counselor? Big Bird's camp counselor. <laughs> I, I was so excited, too, because, you know, after, you know, uh, padding the streets in New York for a period of time and, and wanting to do more commercial work, mm -hmm. uh, to get to be Big Bird's camp, we, they took us to the country mm -hmm. for two weeks, <laughs> and I got to hang out somewhere around Bear Mountain at a camp with Carol Finney. 
you know, with this, you know, big, huge bird and and started to understand what storytelling in television and film was really about. And Carol Smitty, though, just to ask you about, I mean, this is the person inside the big bird costume who actually, you know, it's easy to associate that with just like mascots and people we, we kind of chuckle at. But there was an artist under there, right? There was a true artist under there. Mm-hmm with every movement, and I think that's when I really realized acting is physical Uh and storytelling uh, is visceral. And Carol helped me realize that because even in that bird costume, and I'm sure he was at 80 degrees most of the time, (laughs) I think eventually they were able to put a fan in there. But with his voice and with his physical movements, he could tell his story and he could be friendly, he could be aggravated, he could be pouty. All of those things came out through his performance in this costume. Mm -hmm. And I thought, there's an artist there. Mm -hmm. So you have said in another interview that the first time you felt quote unquote successful was during the run of an off-Broadway show called Seesaw. I think you were 13. Why would that have been the first time? Well, I was very blessed to to do 13 Broadway musicals and have to be showcased in each one. And it was in Seesaw that I felt like, first of all, we had three different incarnations of the show. The show began with uh, John Gavin and Michelle Lee and and, and Ed Sheeran directing, who I absolutely adored uh, and still do. But it wasn't, it's a typical... It wasn't as commercial as the producers wanted it. So we went out of town to try out to Detroit and a number of other cities before we came back to Broadway. And eventually, Lainey Kazan Mm -hmm. and John Gavin were recast, and we got Michelle Lee and Ken Howard, who has been a lifelong friend, and I really adore him. And the show was retooled. So in the beginning, I had three or four acting scenes and and my own song. And by the end, I think I was cut down to two acting scenes and still my own song. But it felt successful because I had my own song. And every night uh, and Wednesday matinee and Saturday and Sunday during the day, I could really express myself within the parameters of, of the musical the way I wanted to. And there was one night early on where I sang my song, Buenos amigos, hello, mama, hello, papa, hello, Spanglishes. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment when I ended the song and people were on their feet. Mm -hmm. And my mother said, you're a showstopper. And that's when I felt like I can do this. Was that also when you took ownership over this as as the path you were to take? Because I wanna wanna quote back to you one thing that I read and I'm, I'm not sure what time period it's referring to. And I think it's it's probably important to pinpoint that. This was a quote, I was pissed that my father and mother were divorced, that I didn't grow up in a well-rounded family. The fact that I started working at seven years old and that for a while I loved it, I loved it, but then I couldn't stop doing it because I'm supporting my whole family. So then it became a noose, close quote. Obviously, you at a certain point decided to continue with it. So then it was your choice. When did it become your choice to keep doing it? It became my choice when I made a huge decision in my career. Mm-hmm. I love singing and dancing. My mother was a friend of Pearl Bailey. I had gone to see Hello, Dolly. Ben Vereen was doing Pippin. All of these great shows were happening, but I quickly realized Andre DeShields was doing a show that African-Americans during that time were the entertainment. And I 
understood what it was to perform and what it was to feel those feelings from people who were excited about what you did or people who jumped to stand and clap for you. Uh, but I didn't want to be just the entertainment. Now, you got to understand the time period then. There's a different timing. I was a black kid. That was I didn't want to be in that box. I didn't want to be labeled. And this is way before unconventional casting yeah, right. came along. So I made a decision to become a dramatic actor. And I think that that, you know, really, in many ways, surprised um, my mother and surprised other people because I was supposed to be this big musical comedy star. But I wanted to move people from one level to another, not because I was just doing the black shows on Broadway. And those black fo folks, they can sure sing and dance really nice. <laughs> you know, I wanted to be more than that. And I wanted to play characters and roles that had depth. And, and then uh, African-Americans weren't written for with that kind of depth. So I'd made a decision. I am going to go and do straight dramatic plays. When was this? This was probably 1977. 10 years into my short career. And had you already gone, I know at one point you went and got a, a two-year degree in radio and TV communication. Was that part of this transition to that point where you're thinking, let me arm myself with, with a variety of options? <laughs> you're exactly right. Yeah. My mother was very smart. She said, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. Mm -hmm. And so I loved radio. Mm -hmm. And I had, uh, I had gone for this degree because I felt like I could be successful uh, on the radio, mm -hmm. which would be totally fine for me mm -hmm. and give me another outlet. I also wanted to have some kind of skill. And for me, it's always been about my head and my hands. They say that Jesus came into his own at 33 because his heart, his head, his hands all came together at mm -hmm. one time. And for me, back then, I did all my own operating, you know, so I knew how to do that, spin my records, you know, had a show on on the air called Jazz Time with G. And, and that was at a time where I was a little over 17, 18 years old and too young to be old, too old to be young. <laughs> and so there were no roles coming my way and nothing I could really capture because here I am still, you know, a, a song and dance guy. And I hadn't really done my work to become a dramatic actor. I had done a soap opera. So I knew what that was about, Cutting but I light, wanted right? to, I, 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 I wanted to deepen my yes, craft. Yes. And so th that was the beginning of me sort of making this decision that I would, I would follow this route and become this dynamic actor. And I wouldn't have, look at that period of time for me, my idol and who still is my mm -hmm. idol was Sidney Poitier. Mm -hmm. And I felt like he never played a color. Mm -hmm. So why, why do I got to play a color? Why do I, you know, and eventually we, we can get to the, we get to the point where I go for auditions and it was really disconcerting. My name is Giancarlo Esposito and people thought maybe I was white and I'd go in and see all these white guys sitting there and they'd come over to me and go, oh, I, I'm so, I'm so sorry. You know, we did, we just didn't know. We, I said, oh, you want a white guy? Oh, and, and they would apologize and I'd walk out. That crushed me. Yeah. So why can't I play? Why does he have to be white? Right. Why can't it be about meritocracy? And uh, I didn't understand. I was so young. <laughs> a moment ago, you mentioned Jesus. And I had read somewhere along the line, you had thought about becoming a priest. I sure did. I went to a military academy 
called Mount St. Joseph Military Academy in Newburgh, New York. And there was something, always I was raised in the church, obviously in the Baptist church and the black church. And I always wondered because, you know, we had great service and then everyone's trying to pile through a narrow doorway to get downstairs because they smell the chicken and the, and the mashed potatoes, <laughs> you know? And so all the church goes out the window because I'm hungry. You know, you know what I mean? So I, I would always notice that and wonder why people just went to church on Sunday and didn't carry some kind of light within, within them all week long or try to raise their consciousness or try to be kind to each other. Church was, in a way, even in the Catholic Church that I went to, I became an altar boy when I was away for two years in, at Mount St. Joseph Military Academy, and it gave me a feeling of solace, of peace. And I loved to be able to be up at an early hour, and I experienced pouring wine for the priests and doing all those things an altar boy does. And a I performance felt- performance element of its own. It is, it's a passion play. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was also a training in the calm that you have to have inside of you when you're performing. You have to know where everyone is on the stage and what everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning because I knew exactly how the priest wanted to be dressed, when not to bring, bring his robes out, when to put them on him, when to pour him the wine before he asked, mm-hmm. you know, how to bless all the communion stuff. It was, a, it was a really pomp and circumstance. And so that was part of the beginning of me really realizing that that. I didn't link this up till years later that there's a stillness inside that you have to have to do what we do as performers. So this all kind of leads up to what I think must have been the first really major moment of your career in terms of launching you into a different level. And that would be when you're 22, it's 1980, and you land the title role in a Negro Ensemble Company production of Charles Fuller's Zoom In and The Sign, for which you would go on to win your first Obie 12 years before your second. But this is the one that, setting aside even what it what it led to, which is going to be some, some big stuff we'll talk about, just getting it, getting that part, doing it so well, getting acclaim, it must have changed a lot of things. It changed many things for me because I was in, a, in an environment that I could really, really observe fine actors. You know... I'll step back one step. Shirley Rich, who I absolutely adored, uh, God rest her soul, was the one who told me, hey, you know, a few years after this Negro Ensemble show that I had to learn how to act. I thought that acting was theater, and I thought to be a dramatic actor in the theater, put aside the musical, would be enough to propel me into television and film. I was wrong. There are different styles, different way of doing things. Certainly, I felt the power from the encouragement I got from the most amazing director, Douglas Turner Ward, and an amazing writer in Charles Fuller. I took that ball and I ran with it because most of the play, Zoo Man was featured alone in monologues. And I could do a monologue mm-hmm. because I could pull emotion from inside myself and have this whole conversation with myself right there on stage in front of the audience. And Zoo Man was a fierce, fierce character who justified an accidental murder, as he calls it. He was trying to shoot at someone else and he hit this little girl, Ginny, and killed her. And the, the folks in the home put up a sign saying the killers of our daughter Ginny are still on the streets. So it was the beginning of that whole gang feeling and gang sort of clan expression that followed years later. But this play gave me the tools because I could feel and know when I had the audience in the palm of my hand. And I could take my time, I could draw them in, I could let them let them out a little bit, and I could draw them in quickly <laughs> again. It, it really allowed me 
to uh, work on the nuance of performance. And Shirley Rich, who you mentioned, is was a, a casting director who you had first, I guess, I don't know if it was the first time you encountered her, but you encountered her when you wanted to go out for this movie called Taps, Correct. which people will remember also Tom Cruise, Sean Penn, Timothy Hutton, and then from a different generation, George C. Scott. But when you first went out for it, she gives you this feedback, basically that you're not ready for screen acting. <laughs> yeah. and not ready for prime not time, ready for baby. Prime time, right. <laughs> so how did that change? Well, you know, she gave me some advice, Giancarlo, look, and she broke it down for me. You are great. You have been really wonderful on stage in the theater. You're a song and dance man, but it is different when you're doing a dramatic play. It's different when you're in front of the camera. It's different when you're on television. And so you have to bring it all down. Everything is too big. You're so dramatic. <laughs> I said, well, surely that's what we do is drama. And she said, but to find the nuance within that drama and allow your eyes to say everything is a different story. I, you're not going to get this part. I walked out. She gave me the most wonderful suggestion. Go do some plays. Simple as that. Go do some plays. So I went down uh, to the Henry Street Settlement, and I did two plays down there. Um, I just pursued acting on a very deep level. A year later, I got a phone call saying, we want you to audition for this movie called Taps. I said, they made that movie. <laughs> and they said, no, it was actually postponed, and Shirley Rich wants to see you again. And I went back and read for Shirley, and she just paused and stared at me, took a deep breath, and she said, Giancarlo, what did you do? <laughs> I said, Shirley, I did what you told me to do. <laughs> so I, I followed her instructions. Yeah. Went in, auditioned, and they chased me out of the room. Met Tim Hutton that day. I was in the room, 10 o'clock in the morning, read one other actor there, and they said, would you come back at 2 o'clock and read with our star? Who is that? Tim Hutton. I said, oh my gosh, I certainly would. And I came back, read with Tim, and Stanley Jaffe chased me out of the room and said, would you do this movie? And I said, are you kidding me? Of course I'll do this movie. And that movie. was the first movie, right? That was my first major, major film. Movie, I had done extra yeah. work in other films, yeah. but this was my first major role in a 20th Century Fox film yeah. that I, I just, I, I was over the moon to be yeah. working with the actors I was working with and to also have the opportunity to work on this level with George C. Scott. Yeah, and that got the ball rolling. I mean, two years later, another movie came out that must have gone into production even sooner to taps than that, and that is Trading Places with Eddie Murphy at the height of his fame. You're his cellmate. Billy Ray Valentine's cellmate, I should say. You know, what was that? Wow. <laughs> I, I felt so blessed to get into that movie. And Eddie was just, you know, hot off of Saturday Night Live and just starting to make film. And uh, this was a moment to shine, but not to overtake. Mm -hmm. You know, Eddie was pretty, pretty big <laughs> then. And this jail scene, I just figured, what am I going to do? I, I think I had one line, but I can do things with my expression in the background that aid and abet and support but also bring attention to me. Now, look, I'm a big scene stealer. You know, <laughs> when I was young, I was right. a big scene stealer. Right. I was just ruthless. Right. If you're not going to take the space and take the stage, <laughs> I'm going to take right. you over. But I was very, very careful yeah. because I realized the, the depth and breadth of Eddie's talent and wanted to just be supportive. So you see me in the background next to him, you know, making faces and, <laughs> you know, doing some karate man stuff. But it was a breakthrough for me. Right. I then, you know, thought, wow, I should have a much bigger role in this film. But it was my route in yeah. and uh, and they liked what I did. So in the meantime, let's just just to reiterate the chronology, 1980 is when you had been in Zoo Man. Then you've got these first few movies, Taps 81, Trading Places 83. In the meantime, 
a guy who I guess had seen you in Zoo Man back in 1980 makes his first film in 1986. She's got to have it. This is Spike Lee. And then comes to you in in or a little before 88 to do his second movie, School Days. So all those eight years or whatever, he'd been thinking about, I want to work with this guy? Well, here's how it went. You know, Spike came down to see this play and he was blown away. He invited me to come down to first run features where he was cleaning films for Maxie Cohen. Wow. And so I would sit there with him while he had his little white gloves on and he'd be rolling film through the steam back and talk about film. And we were slated to work together at least three years before on what was to be his first film, School Days. Mm-hmm. Well, his third film, mm-hmm. right? So he showed me Bed, uh, Joe's Bed-Stuy Barbershop, yes. which I thought was really just such a beautiful film. And then we started talking about School Days, which was a, a full-on musical with toilet paper races at an African-American college. And I thought this is a great way to show the world that, you know, the white world that African-American colleges are just like white colleges. <laughs> Same kinds of things go on. Fraternities and all a competition, sports, all these things. We're real people. Here we are. Uh, but Spike had a hard time getting funding for the film. And so he had to abort our planned making of this film. And that's what took so long. And so he, he culled the musical down and focused it and eventually got the fun- funding and we were able to, to begin. So that's why it took all those years. Yeah, I I can remember back um, his ideas and his courage and his sort of indignation really, really opened my eyes. And in that film, we see something that would sort of be a recurrent theme in his work where it's, I guess you would say, both intra-racial and interracial tensions, right? Where in this case, you're playing this guy, Julian, who is sort of militant in his own way. There are other people on the campus who are approaching things very differently. But what I found interesting and you've spoken about is that your own philosophy about race because of, of course, your experience, I would assume, growing up sort of in a in between these worlds was very different than Spike's. And you guys had to you hash these differences out, right? I mean, there were there were some hard conversations. There were, you know, uh, I, I adore Spike, but we, you know, I, I always feel like that your friends are going to tell you the truth. Yeah. And if your friends don't tell you the truth, then, then you don't need them. And for me, it was always a little disturbing knowing that, you know, Spike had grown up with a little bit of privilege himself, mm-hmm. you know, at St. Anne's mm-hmm. School in Brooklyn and went to the, the best schools and all that. But he was steeped in the African-American way. And I was steeped in in, in the African-American way and also the Italian mm-hmm. way. So we didn't always agree. You know, he would, he'd say, oh, we have a revolution, Giancarlo, Giancarlo. We have a revolution. Which, which side are you going to be on? You know, he would always test people. He did this with many, many people to see where their allegiance lied. And I would always say, look, I'm going to be on the side of humanity. And so we worked everything out because we really liked each other. And I really adored what he was trying to, really respected what he was trying to say and do in his artistry. And when school days, we had to work it out because I understood what he was trying to say because of what I had endured witnessing how my grandmother treated my brother. You know, I mean, she's black, he's black, but because he's lighter, she had a little bit of like a little hesitation with him. She liked me more because I was darker. And I thought, what is this? So Spike opened my eyes. Well, and to that point, this is kind of funny, but I am friends with a woman named Tamara Houston, who 
is the organizer of something called Icon Man. And she's been very sweet to invite me to the Icon Man dinners the last couple of years. And it's an interesting experience for me because it's probably the only time in my life where I am the only or maybe one of only two white people in a room full of people of color. And this year I was there when you helped to honor Spike Lee. And you said, quote, Spike taught me that I could be completely who I am in my own skin and to understand who I am as an African human being in this place we call America, close quote. So your takeaway, even though at the time there might have, it might have caused some friction, those conversations, was, was what? How did he change the way you think? He changed the way I think because he was the coach. And in every single movie, in school days, he pitted, you know, the haves and the have-nots, the wannabes. You know, he pitted everyone against each other because he's a, he likes competition. <laughs> he likes sports. And what I realized was, you know, I mean, I know, I don't want to get too deep into this, but I know that he would always ask, because I always had a white girlfriend, so he was always on me. <laughs> like, you know, what are you seeing here? What, what is that about her you like? You like that white skin? You like that porcelain? You know, he would <laughs> just taught you and so you'd have to either shrink or say yeah that's who that's 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 my flavor that's what I like or that's not my flavor right. and so you know he allowed me to strengthen my resolve as and to not live a color look man I feel like you go to England you meet a French guy you meet it you mean you you know who's might might be black but have a, a whole thick French accent you go to to I mean to England an English accent mm -hmm. all, all over the world you're from Saudi you're English you're this that the other here in America you're black or white I resented that I was like why do I have to live a color you know I'm a human being with a background of culture and spike is so about his culture and his African culture in America. He's not, he didn't go and try to be like the guys who are always in kinte cloth and Africa, pretending they're African here, you know, and I think his eyes got opened up after he went to Africa because he could realize, because I quickly realized when I was around Nigerians and Africans, there was a, a little, not all, but I've experienced a little arrogance, a little like, you know, you're not one of us. What do you mean? We're, we know we're all brothers and sisters. If we're going to band together and bleed African-American or black at that time, why am I not one of you? Because you're not from their culture. You're, you're not Senegalese. You know, you're not from Nairobi. And so you then you start to understand the world in a different way. But Spike didn't go that way and do all. I mean, I'm sure he respects and understands and honors Kwanzaa and all that. But Spike Lee says, I have the right to be American a black African-American. And so from his actions, it was inspiring to me to go, hey, look, I called myself for years Giancarlo Esposito because you pronounce Esposito in America. You know, we had Phil and his brother, the hockey players as Esposito. But when I first started going back to Italy, after Spike really took his toll on me, <laughs> <laughs> then I went, I can be. Giancarlo Esposito. I can be half Italian and half black. I have that right because that is who I really am. So he, so working with him and observing his actions and arguing with him and trying <laughs> to bring him to my side and he, I think I opened his eyes and he opened my eyes and allowed me the courage to just be who I am.
And this was over the course of four movies together. The first, as we say, was School Days. The second is, I think, the best movie of my lifetime. I really do. And I said this to him when we had him on here a few months ago, do the right thing. And you were very memorable as Bugging Out, who, if we can just remind people, a Brooklyn guy with sort of simmering rage, not least because he, quote, wants some brothers, close quote, on the wall of Sal's famous pizzeria. And because he's not getting them there, starts a boycott of the place. Did you think during the summer when you guys shot this there that this was a movie that 30 years ago people would still be speaking of in in the kind of terms that they are? We had no idea. We, we were all very committed to being part of Spike's army of creative actors who were bridging the gap, telling his story of not only a story that takes place within the community in Brooklyn, but also a microcosm for the feelings and the turmoil that's going on around the world. And we were so excited to take over a block in Brooklyn and not have to be on a soundstage or heavily policed by the studio and have Spike be our fearless leader. So we were around within and all about our own people. We were so focused on what we were doing, knowing you know, that the end of this film might inflame people, knowing that that the, the writing on the wall behind Radio Rahim, uh, Tawana Brawley told the truth, knowing that, that Al Sharpton was in the streets at that time leading protests, that this could, you know, Spike, Spike said to me, people afraid of the movie, man. People afraid of the movie. They're afraid people are riot in the streets. You know, that's where we were. We were riding that, that line, but making the movie, no. We, we knew we were trying to make something very powerful that people would sit up and watch and, and look at, but we had no idea we were making a film that would endure as this film has. And maybe the two most memorable scenes of yours in the film, correct me if you disagree, but there is the scene in which a white biker accidentally, I guess, scuffs your new Air Jordans and causes a kind of blow up. And then, of course, the actual blow up really at the end where you have said that you and Danny Aiello, who was playing Sal, it wasn't just your characters that were emotional. It really, you guys had to kind of, I guess, console each other in a way, right? We really did. We had to navigate our feelings, uh, and feelings and emotions are, are linked to past element actions, past experiences that, that we all have. It comes up for us. So during the shooting, Danny and I spoke a bit, because and because Danny and I know and have known each other for a long time, and he knew I was half Italian, uh, but you know I was all black mm-hmm. as bugging out mm-hmm. and representing that part of who I was, and so we started to do the scene, and and emotionally we both got caught up in it, and a lot of rage and anger. Danny slipped, you know, and to, and, and and I slipped. You know, in a way that was, I, I went back to like, I, I, my mother used to tell me when you, someone calls you a nigger, you know, you should just call them white batter. And I was like, mommy, that just doesn't, that just doesn't have the same kind of power. <laughs> <laughs> don't have the same kind of oomph. Right. And, but all that, all those memories of being sat down and told, you know, how to come back with something to say when you're in a confrontation, someone is berating you using the N word. So Danny slipped and I went, ha, you prejudiced motherfucker. It's in there. And then I slipped and he went, ha. And then we were both caught up in this major argument within the context and script of what we were trying to say to each other. But we both got emotional because we both felt 
like this was the way to heal us, to uncover. Because you're not going to say that to someone you've known. Like I knew Danny before the movie. I had I, I, all these Italians. They kind of know. <laughs> they've been getting to know me over the years. Giancarlo Esposito. Who is that guy, man? But he's dark skinned. Yeah, but he's one of us. He's Mulan. Yeah, but he's cool. He's one of us. You know? <laughs> so when we both slipped, we both realized, oh, shit. We showed our cards. But when you say you slipped, you're saying that the rest of that scene was pretty scripted, but that word was not? It was scripted, but it's it's the, the, the fervor and the emotion and the rawness with which you display it. We both knew we had stopped acting. And so when we finished a take of this very visceral moment that we both uncovered our own, yeah, I'm prejudiced. Yeah, you're prejudiced too. And yeah, the, but what was deeper than that was there was a healing kernel. So we hugged each other and to make us, to allow us both to know he for me and me for him that we were safe, but not without looking at the fact that we both felt those emotions. He wanted to kill me and I wanted to kill him. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to tell me I had no right to be here and I knew I did. And the whole theme of the movie is, do you have a right to be here yourself, Sal, with this pizzeria in a black neighborhood when you don't want to give up no extra cheese, you don't want to put no brothers on the wall, you know what I mean? <laughs> you're still acting you know, like you're back in Italy with your people, but this is a new world. So this is the moment that was, it was so, it uncovered the truth about what we were both carrying. And unless you talk about it and address it, it doesn't, get, it doesn't, it doesn't come out. So that was number two of the four with Spike. And let's just say this is all within, so 88, 89, then 1990s Mo Better Blues, nothing 91, but 92 is Malcolm X. So four and five years? Four and five years. Jesus. And so, and each one, incredible. Just anything you would want to say about Mo Better Blues and Malcolm X in terms of your roles there, Left Hand Lacey and Thomas Hagen, respectively? Oh, listen, you know, I learned from working with Spike about history. I learned how to honor. I learned my choices. I learned how much I loved Malcolm X and his radical nature. I learned that I was more in line with Martin Luther King uh, because he encompassed that spiritual side. Not that Malcolm did not, but but Martin had really figured out how to use the Jesus thing. So (laughs) that kind of worked for me because that that encompassed compassion and all that. So I, uh, Malcolm X for me, I wanted to go to Africa. I just wanted to go to Africa with Spike. Can I work on a crew? What can I do? You know, nah, nah, nah. Your role doesn't go to Africa. You're going to kill him. I'm like, nah. I mean, so then I just researched Malcolm's. So what I'm trying to say is that I then, it opened my world to, you know, remember, you can't forget, bugging out, started there, do the right thing. He was my education. Spike grew me up. He helped me to really look back at Marcus Garvey, to really look at at, um, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King to really hear what they were trying to say and to really understand that they were, you know, they gave up their lives for us, for our freedom. But more than anything, they sacrificed for me to be able to have my consciousness. And so I attribute Spike with really gracing me and and lighting that flame that helped me to, to go deeper into history and understand who these men were and what they were really about. Is there a reason did something happen why the last film was in 92 or just the right role has not come about for a fifth film since 
You know, uh, Spike and I tell the truth to each other, and sometimes he'll call me and say, you know, what did you say in this interview, dude? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, no, man. Was it true? John Carlos, is it true? <laughs> I said, Spike, you know, no, 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 just tell me. And we'll be on the phone for a half hour going back and forth about politics and everything else. And so, and then, you know, a month or two later, you know, we'll call each other and he'll go, yeah, you know, okay, we good, we good. I'm like, yeah, we're good. And I love you and I always will. The great news this year is that he did invite me. I was invited to do the Five Bloods uh, in, with him in uh, Asia. He just finished it. My schedule wouldn't allow because it bumped up against another show I'm doing. He had his financing together and it, it kind of fell apart and he had to find it again somewhere else. So the film got pushed and I could not do it. It hurt my heart because <laughs> you know, I love him so much. But that's so nice. That So it sounds like. You know, if not for that one, there'll be another at some point. There will be another. Good, good. So, and and it seems like, I think I had some, at some point I heard that Jim Jarmusch had been a fan of Spikes and then through that came to know about you. And I know that one of your favorite roles was in Night on Earth, one of the five segments there. That came out in 91 in the midst of this run with, with Spike. Why is that one of your favorites? It felt like we were able to do whatever we wanted. It was a freeform style. Jim had written a, a bulletproof script. However, it was 20-minute segments. New York, L.A., Rome, Paris, Helsinki. And he hadn't named the movie. And so, of course, I was in, in the New York piece. But it felt like we were on a train and that we were you were either struggling to keep up or you were driving that train. And my role was to drive the train. And so I had Rosie Perez, Armin Mueller-Stahl, who I just adore and think is the most amazing actor in the world. But it was the best because we had a, a formula and we had lines, but we could improvise. And I was the, the chief engineer in charge to get us back on track to keep our timing at 20 minutes. Got it. A year after that, in 92, Bob Roberts, directed by Tim Robbins. If I remember correctly, your character is dealing with a disability. And I, I guess the physicality of that role also being directed by a fellow actor, I guess that had been the case sort of with Spike. But Spike never even really, it seems like, thought of himself as an actor. He just did it to help get financing or whatever. So to be directed by Tim Robbins in that particular role. Love that role. Tim is a genius. I feel like his writing skills are really, really unbelievable. And his mental acuity and how he feels and expresses himself uh, politically and personally is really wonderful. So for me to be able to play Bugs Raplin, I do a lot of research for every role I do. And I, I base that particular character on Danny Castellaro, who discovered the octopus. Danny's no longer with us. And he said, if I'm ever found dead, you know, I didn't kill myself, <laughs> you know. Uh, but that was the beginning of, of, of my truly uh, tr trying to understand the John Birch Society and the connection between the large corporations and our politics. Tim is relentless. And I only wanted to please him. And I had so much work to do in that particular movie because he's playing the lead and I have to play the guy who's investigating him. It was daunting. We did, he, we did it. And I, what I really loved was that he gave me the respect and the ability to research. He'd call me at three in the morning and ask me questions. What about hubris? Hubris. How does hubris play into this? can you meet me at the bar in an hour? You know, <laughs> and I'd be downstairs, the bar's closed, have some coffee and talk from four to six about hubris and to do, to really be able to uncover and try to link up what is in Bugs Raplin's mind and how he's going to get the information he needs. Mm -hmm. 
Usual Suspects is a classic. 1995, you're playing a, I think maybe the first time you were playing a agent, an FBI agent. There have been a few where people thought of you for that. In this case, with some very talented people in a, in a film that I don't think it was sort of highly anticipated, but it, it really took people by storm. It truly did. You know, I, I, The Usual Suspects was a film that I, I got the, the script when I was in Cannes from Robert, who was a producer in the first day. He says, I got this guy. I got this guy. We're going to go. And uh, I, I want you to read this part. It's, it's a decent part. It's not, not big, but it's, you're going to love it. And so I read the script, didn't understand a word of it. <laughs> I just didn't get it. I was like, what is right, this? Right, right. You know, three days later, I see him. He has a long face. He, you know, he lost uh, all of his funding. I got to find the funding again. Uh, did you read it? I said, I read it. I don't get it. He said, read it again. So I, I read it again. And then I understood it. No one thought that film was going to do much of anything. You know, Chris McQuarrie wrote an incredible script that you have to read twice to really go, oh, I put it together. <laughs> and then, you know, brilliant writer, brilliant director now. And then we had Brian Singer, who was a young director who had brilliant ideas. And you're with Kevin Spacey, Chaz Palminteri, you know, all these really, really, really incredible actors. It changed my life doing that film because, again, we shot it right down here at the Herald Examiner building downtown LA and we had no idea it was going to do what it did Benicio del Toro I mean all this you know Benicio would come in and do <laughs> And then all the other actors would go, hey, Benicio. And so I remember Baldwin turning to him, you got to talk like that? Yeah, I'm going to talk like that. Brilliant, brilliant choices. Acting is making choices. And I'm, I'm really blessed to have been in that movie to make some of the choices I made to put me in the league with all these other great actors. Yes. And in between all these things, I just want to note before I go on to the next screen part, you're always going back to the stage. So there's a lot of great stage work in there that I'm not meaning to gloss over, but I know that the, you know, uh, uh, one of the biggest TV series that I guess probably the biggest TV series that you were part of prior to the Vince Gilligan era would have been Homicide Life on the Streets, final of the seven seasons. You get a call, I guess, from Tom Fontana after Andre Brower departed the show. And I gathered that that was an interesting acting challenge in the sense that just in terms of the way they just even shot the show, was different than anything you'd ever seen. Sure was. You know, I was so blessed to be tapped for Homicide. And uh, it's interesting. I was thinking about Tom Fontana this morning. What an incredible writer and thoughtful human being who also, uh, in his observance of our world, is able to to take the best and and the worst and, and, and make such a great creative TV show. Those were big shoes to fill. You know, Andre had really rocked the house on that show. And how was I going to come in and, and make an impression of any kind at all? But it allowed me to be in, in a situation with in, in a television world uh, that allowed me to really practice uh, my acting skill and my style, you know, and uh, and and also to learn how to work with a different, completely different style of of filmmaking with the camera. I mean, they put the camera on the ground on some rails, and uh, you know, they would slide on this little like dolly on the floor and shoot up at us uh, as we were in a, a, a circular conversation. I never thought anything like it. It was like theater, right? It was like theater. 
That's what it did for me. It allowed me to tap into my, my, my theater skills and to never stop acting. You know, always in film and television, the thing that always got me, even with the young, you know, young stars now who we regard as stars but who weren't then in, in taps, I, I just, I, I, and they would, they would, you know, learn their lines for a page of the scene and then they'd say cut and it'd be over. And I was always the person who always wanted to stay in character, but that's my theater background. And that's what Homicide did for me. You had you, to stay in character. You had to stay in character. <laughs> Because the guy would, that was the first show where they really put the camera on on someone's shoulder and they would just spank and move around whoever was talking or whoever was moving in or out of the scene. And so for me, that allowed me to always have that to be on my P's and Q's. Mm -hmm. Michael Mann, Ali, 2001, I should say. I love Michael Mann. He is so specific and so... Uh, defined in what he does by not only his visual genius, but his artistic sensibility. This is a guy who just has a sense of color. He has a sense of theme. He has a sense of how he's going to tell the story, but then he gets in there. I think he's an art director and and also a costume designer all at one time. You know, he'll stand there and fix your tie. What do you think about this tie? This tie doesn't really work. You go back and forth and back and forth. I really adore Michael Mann because I feel like um, he is that Picasso about his work in so many different ways. And I never knew Michael Mann, I think, was the, the director that gave me the gift of wanting to direct because he is so specific. Everything matters. He carried a set. I was supposed to be in a scene with Jamie Foxx and Will Smith in Chicago, a Chicago hotel room. This, you know, if you ever talk to Michael, just say Chicago hotel room. (laughs) He carried the set. He carried this thing around all of the furniture, the wallpaper, the lamps, everything that he wanted to have in this room for three months. He called me once. We're going to do it now. You know, Chicago, we're going to New York. No, no, I got, I got the room now. It's in Miami. And so he finally finds the room. It finally ends up being in Chicago. They decorate the whole room. He's been shooting a different part of the movie. He walks in, he looks at the room and he goes, no, (laughs) you don't put the wallpaper up vertically. Uh. It's horizontal. (laughs) Right. Scrap the whole thing. We finally get the scene. This is when I realized, wow. How attached are we to our vision? How important is that for the time period? And that was his point. You know, you know, we're in the 70s, man, and, and late 60s, 70s, everything is horizontal. Nothing is vertical. And I went, wow, for a guy to figure all that out, besides having to direct me, Will Smith, Jamie Foxx, <laughs> uh, he's an inspiration to me, Michael Mann. I love him. All right, so this brings us to Gustavo Gus Fring. Drug kingpin, spends his days working at Los Pollos Locos, fast food chain. Los Pollos Hermanos. Excuse me, let's excuse me, Los Pollos Hermanos. I wish it was Pollos Locos, and I wish I owned it, but it's Los Pollos Hermanos. Excuse me. No worries. Um, Initially, of course, on Breaking Bad, 2008 to 2013, AMC. I want to ask you a question just about the sort of stepping back, I guess they say the macro of this, before we talk about your work on the show. Breaking Bad debuted and caught fire at a time when the country was just entering this great recession. And I've always wondered if the story of of Walter White connected with a lot of people, in part because he was a man who basically lost control of his life, like so many other Americans at that same time, and then fought and found a way to regain it. Even before becoming involved with Breaking Bad, you were one of those Americans, right? Yes, I was. 
Yes, I was, you know, a little over my head in a house in Connecticut, uh, four daughters, unable to, to really make a living as an actor. The whole contract and residual contracts changed. I wasn't going to the mailbox every day and getting those two or $3,000 checks two or three times a month. And uh, I was failing miserably and went bankrupt. And it allowed me to realize that I had needed to take ownership uh, over what I do in my career and to figure out how to be a writer or a director and do other things that enhance not only my acting, but that would help my family survive. And so, I mean, one of the things that you've talked about was that at, I think, right about that time, your marriage is ending. But even, you know, at that point, your your wife is the one that's saying to you, don't take a money job, don't compromise, because you'd never done that. You'd never done crap just to get paid. No, and I, and I was so grateful for her support, you know. She is someone who is a dear, dear friend, but looks at the macro picture. And I had always been one with, um, and still am one, with great integrity. So I never wanted to sell out and do something that I didn't feel. You know, I always wanted to do something that meant something, that, that told a story that was valuable for other people to be able to imbibe that would empower them. And for me to be one of those Americans who I literally had horrible thoughts because my wife's family was in life insurance and I thought, okay, now let me just check on the life insurance thing. But if I were to kill myself, my children would survive. An awful place to be. So, And, and I am even then in that poverty, a privileged American, you know? And so uh, it wasn't until a dear friend of mine gave me a book called Find the Cheese that I switched my head around. I said, you give me a book about a mouse finding some cheese? He said, well, we're the hunter-gatherers. You know, that's what we do. We go out in the world, we do our work, we come home, we bring the world back home to our children, but you have to switch up and find the cheese. So uh, an important time in my life to realize that not only did I want to be a participant as an actor, but I also wanted to be an owner. Not to harp on anything that if you if you don't want to get into this, we don't have to get into it at all, but I know that your second film that you directed, I think, I don't remember exactly what year, I think it was maybe two, three years ago, dealt with suicide. Yes, it did. And in talking about that film when you were promoting it, you volunteered that, you know, it's been a problem in your family and referring to the period that I think we're talking about right now, you said, just so, because I, I don't know if we're being hyperbolic or if you were, I mean, this is what you said, quote, I found myself at the wrong end of a 12-gauge shotgun at one point thinking that I should blow myself away, close quote. It really got that? It got that bad. You know, it did get that bad. I was also in a position at that particular time and uh, that I was so depressed that I was looking for something to anesthetize me. So you take depression and then you add drugs to it, not a good combination, drugs and alcohol to it because you're, you're just trying to kill the pain that's inside of you. Yeah, then you, you're, you're, you're in a position where you, there is no hope whatsoever. And so for me, I know that I, you know, I was thinking this morning, the, the feeling of gratitude takes over for me. And to be in the position I am today where I still love what I do. I don't do it for money. I don't even do it for glory. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I do it because it is my calling. And to realize that I have had the ability to recover, flip my head back around, you know, take that gun out of my mouth, go get help, go to a rehab, do all the things I needed to do to get my head together, and then allow myself to see the, the positive side of my existence. 
And then I had, you know, I had very young children. Now my, my kids are 23, 20, 19, and 15. And now I look at them and I go, they are my inspiration because I stuck it out and because they stand up and tell me what the truth is now. A lot of your children who say, uh-uh, you know, they were ripping me the other day, man. They're like, Papa, no, this has got to stop now. Uh, <laughs> you know? I'm like, no. They didn't like, just so we know. They don't, like, they don't let you have the socks that high? I got the socks up to my knee <laughs> with my Bermuda shorts. And they're like, man, that Papa, this is, we're doing it. But yesterday, we're doing an intervention. <laughs> oh, my God. I think you got to just take look. That's cool. Uh, but that's amazing. And and I think the the... I guess that, of course, begs the question, how does a guy who at that time had no agent, had a manager only for directing, wind up being recruited to what has maybe turned out to be the greatest, once a lot of people think the greatest TV show ever? Well, you've really done your homework. That's, yes, I, I, I got tired of calling the agent saying, hey, where's the work? Where's the work? What, you know, I'm working harder than you are. It really kind of blows me away. I was doing, you know, I, I, things broke for, for me in Revolution. Got a TV series that I thought was going to go three or four years. Eric Kripke, great writer, J.J. Abrams, and a great role. I wasn't finished with Tom Neville at all. He, he was just um, so non-stereotypical, and but a guy who did what he had to do. I was doing that show, and I was in Toronto, Canada, doing a guest spot on. See, things started to break. So I was doing Revolution, and I was in Toronto doing uh, a guest spot what became a a semi-regular on Once Upon a Time. And I got a call to go audition for this show called Breaking Bad. And and I had to read for it because they said to me, and at that point in time, I was getting a little bit like, you know, I had two TV shows. (laughs) Yeah, I don't really want to read anymore, you know, which I've completely stepped back off of now because I feel like going in to read for a part gives you an opportunity to exercise your craft. So I went in to read. And this is just to interrupt for one sec. Who's Josh Kesselman? Josh Kesselman is my manager. Okay. And he's the one that said at that point, so now you did, you had gotten back to having a manager. He calls you up and says what? He says to me, hey, they're doing this show. Uh, a, a fairly unknown guy named Vince, Vince Gilligan is, is, is making, making a show called Breaking Bad. It's about a school teacher and this, that, and the other, blah, blah. And, and, it, and in fact, it had already been on the air. For one season or something. That's correct. Yeah. And he wanted to send it to me. And I said, well, you know, send it to me. Let me look at it. And I looked at it and I thought it was extremely interesting. And then they said they wanted me to read. And then I was like, uh, how about, you know, can't they just give me an offer? A little did I know at that time, I did not know that Philip Seymour Hoffman wanted that cat role. And, really? Oh, yeah. He was in talks with wow. Vince. He, he, he had read it and just was, was oh, I never knew that. lobbying wow. to play that particular part. And so I said I would read for it. Why not? And I went in and read, and I remember I had specific ideas of what I wanted to, to how I wanted to do it, and got some really, really uh, great advice from the casting director here on the lot in L.A. And she was so deferential to me because, you know, she just said, you know, we, we, she had known a lot of my work. So she kind of felt a little badly I had to come in and read. Uh, but she said, this is the way Vince wants it. And she was so supportive. And and I read and I knocked it out of the park and I got the call to say, and, and now this is not a series regular role. At that time, it was one it episode. Was just in one episode. <laughs> that was it. You know, so... I went to do that one episode, and I acquitted myself very, very well. I went with my youngest daughter, Sierra Lucia, who's with me in Los Angeles yeah. now, actually. And uh, and I got sick, you know, before. I, I, I had uh, 
uh, I had eaten a whole bunch of nuts on the plane and oh, I exacerbated no. my colon. They told me I had diverticulitis and I was in the hospital the night before. All, all this all this wild stuff going on. Melissa Bernstein, producer, came down and said, what can I do? I said, you can take my little girl to the bookstore while they check me out. And the doctor came and said, man, you're in such good shape. Well, you know, This is the beginning of a little diverticulitis. You just need to, I'll give you some antibiotics and you'll be out of here by 12. And I went to the set and did a great episode. Got off the plane, phone rang, said, hey, would you come back and do another? This is Josh Kesselman calling me. They loved you. What did you do to them? They're freaking out. They want you to do another episode. And I said, well, sure, I'll come back and do another episode. End of season two, did another episode. And then they call again and they say, well, you know, they want to offer you a, a contract. And I said, and now things are heating up for me. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. Like, I'm like, no, I don't want a contract. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Maybe, well, you know, because they were going on hiatus. And because the show itself, you know, everyone thinks of it now as winning Best Drama Series, all this stuff. That didn't really start until season three or four, right? Yep. That was started, still under the radar. That's That was still under the radar, started around season four. And I, of course, signed up. Uh, in three to do a whole season and then to do all of four before I was to meet my demise. Uh, <laughs> but I, I quickly realized that, and using all the tools in my toolkit, when I said yes to the show, I said, I want to talk to Vince Gilligan because I want to figure out what his ideas are for the show. But I also realized I had my own power because I could really drop down and create this character of Gus the way I wanted to. Well, I want to ask you, when you went in for that first episode audition, and even when you did the first episode, I'm trying to remember what, what your character does in that first episode that made them want to have you keep coming back. But So maybe you can share that. But, but how much of the character when you showed up on set the first day was on the page? And how much of it from that first day did you bring to it in terms of his fastidiousness about the way he looked and acted and just the, the whole demeanor? I wondered always... I get the sense that some of it was certainly obviously, you know, on the page, but you really had to read into it. Oh, I certainly did. I had my own ideas from the clip-on tie that went on. You know, I went to military <laughs> school and our ties back then were clip-on ties and I so related. I also had a, a lot of experience in the restaurant business and I had been a waiter, a busboy first, then a waiter and then a bartender. But my, my main way of making a living was being a waiter because I could use my performance skill to be charming yes. and to get that tip where it needed to be. So that I really related to all that. I also knew that it was the grace with which you talk to people in a restaurant which would make them feel comfortable and want them to come back. And so I brought all that to the table. The fastidiousness I wanted to have because I wanted him to be clean. I wanted people to feel like his restaurant's clean and he really cares about his food. So, of course, Vince had, had written some of that in, but when he saw that blend with what my performance, they went crazy. And I, I always say it this way. I feel I was so inspired by the writing of this particular show. And I, I, I didn't really realize that the actions I was taking and the choices I was making would inspire them. Yeah, both ways, I guess. I mean, one of the things that fascinated me reading about this was in terms of your own, what you brought to the table, just to get into the character each time you showed up to, to play him, there had been things, everything from watching Animal Planet to breathing exercises and yoga and stuff. Why were those kinds of things that you might think are, you know, somebody who's not an actor might think are completely, what does that have to do with, with Gus to yoga and animals? Can well, you share? Yeah, for me, so writers are very specific about what they write in their lines. And I never wanted to change any lines. A lot of actors change lines to fit their rhythm. 
I wanted to create a character and create a new rhythm. And so for me, all, all I could control was the space between the words. And that changes my rhythm. I also realized if I paid more attention to my scene partner, it would take the attention off myself and allow my voice and my feeling and my essence to be very specific. And so I quickly realized that I could control the rhythm of Gus and allow him to be anything I wanted him to be within the parameters of what was written. And they saw that. They saw this very meticulous, specific guy without being studied. And I think that and the combination of energy that was transferred between me and Brian. Like for Brian and I to be together in a scene, we completely listened to each other, held our own ground, but were able to spar in a way that they had never seen before because we weren't trying to top each other. We were trying to really inform each other of what, what we needed in the scene. Well, you and he were both actors who had been around for a long time, who people, you know, I, I think certainly respected, but did not realize the full extent of what you were capable of until you were together. What do you think it is about him that makes him so good? And then also about your, I guess what you're saying is the, in terms of the dynamic was that you, there was something very special there, but I wonder if you can pinpoint it. Uh, I think it's that, you know, for me, I realized I was re I was, I was in a scene with a master. Uh, it takes a lot of thought and energy to, to not only be prepared, but then to let all that preparation go and be spontaneous. And uh, I feel like Brian is that actor. He completely prepares himself, and then he's able to not only learn the lines in a bulletproof way, but to also allow himself to be surprised. And for me, I was the same way. It's like being in a joust. Anything can happen. The stick can break and fall off your horse. Whatever, you know, anything can happen. What? So that kind of raises the tension of a scene and it allows you to be more focused on your scene part because you know he's a wild card and I think if Brian <laughs> thought that about me all this calm and, and Brian I scared Brian because I would go to a place that was beyond acting because it, it allowed me that yoga breathing allowed me to be to look at someone and look right through them and just to come back for a second to that what did you get from Animal Planet oh I always like to watch animals because I feel like they are, they direct our movement. You know, Animal Planet to me gives you space to hear nature and we're all a part of nature. Yes, we're in a situation, a TV show and a scene where the writer's words are everything, but what about not saying any words at all? <laughs> Your time with Breaking Bad came to an end at the end of season four in the episode appropriately titled Face Off. Can you share when and how you found out that that would be the end for you and uh, how you handled that? Uh, you know, Vince, had, you know, whenever the, the, the king, the master, the genius, and he's so humble. It's just so wonderful that we all have these great 
descriptive words to describe him, uh, but he's a country boy from Virginia who is just a just a wonderful guy. Came down, we all know it. And I was back in, at ABQ Studios in in the trailer, and they said, "Hey, Vince wants to see you in his office." And I I said, "Whoa, wait a minute, <laughs> that's not that's not a good sign." And I walk into the office, and he said, "Hey, sit down." And we start talking, and I had really wanted him to see my film Gospel Hill because I I, I really wanted to direct an episode of Breaking Bad. And I, have you seen my movie? Yeah, I haven't ever seen it yet. I said, Vince, you had the movie for a year. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I haven't seen it yet. And so we're sitting there talking, and uh, he says, uh, hey, "Let me let me get up and clo- uh, close the door." And I said, Vince, no, 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 you don't you don't close the door. <laughs> And he looked at me, ah, just that same exact laugh, you know, a little nervous. And okay. So we street talk about a few more things. And so you're going to tell me what's going to happen in the season and whatnot. I'm just baiting him, baiting him, baiting him. Oh, let me stand up. Look, you sit down. I told you, you don't close the door, Vince. And then he starts to get a little nervous. Then we talk a little more and I say, so is there an opportunity for me to direct? And you know what's going to happen? I already know in my brain what he wants to tell me. <laughs> he stands up one more time and I stand up with him. I said, I told you. I told you, sit down, don't close the door. And then he just starts to chuckle a little bit. He looks at his phone. Maybe I make a phone call. <laughs> you know, they get this guy out of my office. And then I bust it out loud. <laughs> and which eased the tension. I closed the door. He said, look, the town's not big enough for both of you. And told me, didn't tell me. He said, you know, you know obviously I knew, but told me he was they're going to kill me off. But basically was inclusive. What say for example this happened? What would you do? He wanted to know physical mannerisms of what Gus might be doing, and I said, Vince, you watch me. Just go back to the footage. You know what I do. You know I stand up. You know I, I sit down. I unbutton my jacket. I stand up. I button it back up. I fix my tie. You know it's that checking thing, making sure I'm appropriate. He went, ah, oh, you straighten your tie. So for example, if there were you know possibly an explosion, <laughs> would that be something you do? I said it would, might be perfect, and and we landed on it, and he included me in it. I didn't know if that's what he was going to put in the script. That's eventually what was written out of our conversation, and I felt like I wasn't dying at all. I felt like he was giving me the opportunity to to have a hand in my own creative demise that he was going to write. And I just feel like that's a brilliant way to allow someone to know. He told me how great I was on the show, how much he appreciated me, why this had to happen. And I walked out of that room feeling great. And the scene itself is unforgettable. And in fact, I think the person that helped with the makeup that makes it as haunting as it is is someone you've continued to work with. Greg Nicotero. I'm just so excited to have just worked with him as a director. He was so very specific and creative in creating the the bust. I went down with my, my eldest daughter, who's also here in L.A. with me this weekend, who he took on a tour of his whole facility while I was cast in the cement cast and she held my hand for half an hour and then he came and grabbed her that straws in my nose I couldn't hear couldn't see nothing and then whenever she and she would come back and touch me and know I was all right and Greg uh, who's done directed creep show and it's just I mean he's done you know glorious bastards so many different movies uh, so specifically fit in that world of makeup he's a makeup artist uh, he did my face uh, for that and I'm so happy that I met him I, I just work with him again, and he is as brilliant a director as he is uh, a makeup artist and designer. I just have to ask you, I heard that after that scene, you told Vince, quote, it has been great, close quote. 
what, I sure, what I did sure he did. say? It, I said it has been great because my experience of being, of working with very, very, spe- I'm very specific in my life, I realize. I, I didn't really understand it till I work with people who are a little bit more specific than I am. And the folks uh, on Breaking Bad have thought through everything. They're brilliant, brilliant minds to link up something from episode one and you find out another clue to that same thing that was teased in one, you see it in 10, and they do this for years and years and years, means they're very thoughtful. And I respect thoughtfulness. I think that artistry has to be thoughtful. It's like, for me, one of my my great goals is to work with Mike Lee, to rehearse a a film for three months, like a play, and then be in it and live it and go shoot it, uh, and then let it go. That's deep artistry. But in this case, though, when you said it has been great, past tense, what was his response? I don't remember. I had read one thing where he said, there is no has been. There's always flashbacks, like oh, suggesting oh, there was. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Now, well, what, the reason I asked this is, do you think he was already even thinking, maybe not sharing, but thinking better call Saul? You know, I don't know that. I don't think so. I think that's a typical director producer thing to say. You can always come back in flashbacks. <laughs> Believe me, I heard it on Jet. I've right. heard it here. I've heard right. it there. Uh, that's what I think. I think it's a way of allaying my sadness that I'm right. leaving the show. And so you did, though, I believe it was for that fourth and final season, Emmy nomination, first one, which was got to feel great, especially as we've talked about all the things, the the roller coaster leading up to it. You get that. You go on for the next few years or doing some terrific things. And I know that it was in that period that you met your hero, Sidney Poitier. You get a, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, some like incredible things. But I don't know. Did you ever in your wildest dreams think that you were not done with Gus Fring. I I was done. Yeah. I mean, I got to be honest with you. I was done because I don't want the, the, you know, in many ways we're in the golden age of television, but I really don't want the golden handcuffed. I want to be play different roles all the time, never realizing that I had the, I, I was already doing that because with the advent of cable in this new world of TV, we have 13 episodes. I can go off and do a movie or another TV show in tandem with it. But, I figured it was over, you know, because how do you top that? And we and we know the guy's dead. We know the guy's dead. So the idea, though, when when it was, you know, broached with you, I mean, the public first caught wind of it, I guess, when they when they tease season two's episodes with titles that some, I don't know what kind of person how they were able to figure it out, but the first two letters of all the episodes of season two spelled "Fring is back." So we know that you were coming back, but for you, the the getting you to come back, to agree to come back, was there any pause in the sense that where can you go but down? This was the great again, the greatest show. I would have. I'm thinking to myself at that time, just leave it alone. It can only tarnish the legacy. How can it be good to have a Better Call Saul? Period. Not not specific to you, just generally. So I guess like when it was broached to you, was there any? reservation on your part. Yes, there was because I'm I want more. I still want more. Vince, Peter, I want more. Yes, reservation because how do you, you know, it was a prequel, which I which was the first thing that wet my whistle and had me go, "Oh, I could be a Gus before Gus," which is great. Gives me an acting challenge yep. to to go backwards and to have more uh, vulnerability, more exuberance, whatever it is. However, what will we find out that's new? 
And that, for me, is ultimately the desire. Um, will we be able to research his past and do all these other things within a show that's called Better Call Saul? So I... I, I did talk to Vince. He said that could happen, uh, but it is a show about Saul, and and he was very honest with me. The less you know about Gus, the more you are mystified by him and intrigued by who he could be that you don't know. So I took the bait, but it was a great – and I've worked on being that younger Gus and allowing myself to, to be – to show you hints of where – Gus goes, uh, but it certainly has been been a challenge uh, to play him this way and to be patient. They say good things come to those who wait. Well, the temptation, I'm sure a lot of people must ask you, and I was just about to ask you, you know, are you able to slip back into the same character easily? But then I realized it's not the same character. This is a guy that's, what? how many years earlier are we talking about? It's six or seven years six earlier. Six or seven years earlier. I mean, even just... Physically, do they do things to not that you've changed that much in your parents or anything, but do they make you guys do they do things for the characters who we know from Breaking Bad to to change your appearance? Absolutely. A little yeah. more hair, a little darker, not yeah. so much gray. Yeah. You know, uh, just, you know, make your skin look less wrinkly because we've all aged a little bit. But uh, we have such a great makeup artist that that we are we're able, you know, we do skin therapies, new skin, but uh, you know, all that, but we, but it's the attitude. It's the attitude we bring to it. That's a little younger, a little, a little more naive. And do you think it affects a performer when you know that the audience knows where your, what your fate is? Somebody like Ray Seahorn, who knows how she factors into the future? We know where you're going. Exactly. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing. Yeah. I think it's a good thing because then people aren't afraid for what might happen to you. And they're and they 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 already have that block that that's done. How will we get to that next level of Gus? I think they're intrigued to see the 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 pre, the before, the unknown. So finally, this most recent season I I read you did with basically a broken ankle which can't have been easy. Has there been a scene or a moment in this season, in the show overall, but probably this season that was most challenging, most gratifying to pull off? And part B, it all has resulted in another Emmy nomination, making you one of the very few people ever to be nominated for playing the same character on multiple shows, which is a, a, a cool sort of historical thing, but just the whole, the whole thing of, of the challenge of it all, which you continue to blow people away. The Emmy nomination is not a coincidence. So just, you know, this last year, let's say, with or this last season of Better Call Saul, what it was like, and where you think it's all gone. Well, it's been really, really wonderful to be able to have some very, very honest scenes with um, another Emmy nominee, Jonathan Banks, who plays Mike Ehrmantraut. I have, yes, I, I broke my ankle at the end of last season. That was probably the biggest challenge was to 
to have the desire to be there. I was uh, almost uh, finished with the season. I had two episodes left, and I, I played the scenes with my knee on a box, and I would just turn my body in different ways, and they'd have a stand-in walk-in, and it was really seamless, and I'm really grateful for all the love that came to me from the folks on set and the understanding that came within that. My challenge has, has, has been to really just be patient and to cultivate every moment and not feel like anything is passing me by. And that's the way I feel today. I feel so grateful. I'm in deep, deep gratitude. I didn't even realize that um, I, I think this is the second time someone has told me. And so now I'm really getting it. You know, the same character, two different shows spanning two decades. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. Uh, and I feel like, well, what a blessing that is. And how would I have ever passed up this opportunity ever? The morning that we were uh, allowed to know that there was an Emmy announcement being made, I didn't even know it was being made that morning. And I, again, here I am again with my sensitive stomach. I had, I, I had a stomach ache and I had just sipped on some hot water and I was about to go to the gym. And I said, let me just lay down for five minutes. I'm in my gym clothes. I just had to curl up in the phone rings and I wasn't going to answer it. And I answer it and it's Jennifer Sims, my publicist, who says, hey, you know, you, congratulations, you are <laughs> second time Emmy nominee. And I, I just went, get the bleep out of here. And then I, and then my next question was who else? Yeah. And you know, they, they, they mentioned there's Jonathan Banks and Chris, what's Chris last name from, this is us. Um, yeah. T Taylor is it? Chris Taylor, who I had just met at a photo shoot, who I could see his beautiful smiling face and great and lovely spirit. And I went, ah, and then Peter Dinklage and other people, oh, I said, these are great actors. I'm in you know, great form with them. All of them are deserving. And it was, you know, I, the first time I, you know, got a nomination, I was like, oh, I'm going to win. I want to win. I want to win. <laughs> and this time I, I, all of a sudden I realized I've already won. I already won. Like I went, oh, if I could have this feeling always so honored to be with this group of people, certainly proud of my work. You know, I, I realized none of it matters. I had little screen time compared to some of these other guys. None of that matters. I've won already. And that feeling of gratitude, not a jealousy in me, not a prediction in me. I, I'm just so excited because now I can enjoy it. Yeah. You know? yeah. I can go and really enjoy the evening. You know, And if I wind up up there, that's great. Uh, and if not, maybe one day. But I feel really grateful that, because for me, it's the work. I go into this show working one day on an episode, one day out of eight, and I'm still like a little kid. I'm still like, okay, how do we figure this out? How do we do this? And how will this work? And then I let it go. How do you deal with other actors on set who don't do it the same way you do? How do you have the patience? How do you observe? Gus observes and sees everything. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, and so I scare people because they treat me with deference because I know what's going on behind me because I can, I, my ears can see it. <laughs> so they're, they're a little like, wow, this guy is so much. But then when I laugh and I take off the pressure, they realize I'm Giancarlo. And I just did an epic scene last week, man, where I like, I, I say very, very little as Gus does. And then there is literally all this that happens behind me. And I just feel like, gosh, this is how it must feel to be a movie star. <laughs> well, you're a great actor. I so appreciate you doing this. And congrats again on the 
nomination, whatever happens, it's a treat to have you on this podcast. Well, what will happen is I'll be there with bells on. I'll be honoring. I realize the opportunity to be nominated does what? I started to think about it. Oh, it's an opportunity for me to be in, to have glory, to me to, you know, for me, people see my face. That's going to be my next movie or the next five years is locked. Because people are going to be calling me. It is the opportunity to be able to empower people to be their best selves. It's the opportunity to talk about how talented our crew is, our directors of all of these shows. And it's the opportunity to remind other thespians how blessed that we all are to be doing what we love to do to be following our bliss. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash scottfeinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.